Hey there, misfits. This is Kate. And I'm Kale. Welcome to Horrorwood. day of Hanukkah. Uh, So happy Hanukkah if you celebrate that. And we just want to talk about a few things that um, have occurred in the last week that I think everyone uh, has probably heard about by now, at least here in the United States. The first one is the passing of Stephen Boss, aka Twitch, which I, you know, it's weird because whenever there's a celebrity death, it's it affects me, but at the same time, like I do feel a distance from it. But this one, and I've heard this from a lot of people, it's it's a tough one. Yeah, it's it's really heavy. And I think it's because I mean he had just posted he posts a lot of dancing videos. Um for if you don't know who Twitch is, he's a dancer. He was the DJ on the Ellen show, kind of Ellen's um right-hand man, so to speak. Uh, he was married to Allison Holker, another dancer. He has three beautiful children. And the the two of them, Twitch and Allison, always posted dance videos that I watched constantly on mm-hmm. social media. And they're just the happiest, the happiest videos. And then to find out that one day after his wedding anniversary, he died by suicide. And I think it really caught everyone off guard. Yeah, I think, um, one, we all know that depression does not discriminate. Mm -hmm. And two, I think we really don't know what's going on in other people's minds. Um, There's a lot of heaviness out there in the world and there's a lot of cruelty. And I think it's just a constant reminder for all of us to um, go out into the world with kindness and a Mm -hmm. caring attitude. And I know this season can be brutal. um, Yeah. Both in like patience and, you know, greed and, and sadness and loss and just, you know, feeling it brings all up the feels. all the emotions and and it can also bring joy and happiness. Right. Sure. Um, so I think the thing is, 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 is just go out with care, um, you know, and patience, you know, people are going through it and mm-hmm. your baristas, they, they have a lot that they oh have my to God, do. Yes. Um, anyone working a lot of money, any kind of customer service, anything be kind to them. This is probably the toughest time of year for them because they have customers returning things, ordering things, screaming that, you know, things aren't being delivered on time. There, there's just a lot. And I, you know, all the Christmas songs and and all the holiday decorations and stuff, you know, talk about like light and joy. And yet this is always a time of year when I see like crazy people on the roads, people screaming at each other. No one has patience. It's just like, what is happening? Yeah, I think just making sure that we all kind of embrace each other, whether it be like 
an actual physical touch or whether it's, you know, soul to soul, mind to mind, spirit to spirit. Um, I think there's a lot of love to give out there. And I, and I feel that that is one of the most important free things we can do. Mm -hmm. It can be a really tough world to, um, to navigate through regardless of what you have. So let's just all keep that in mind and let's just try to make sure that, you know, we all, um, can be the helpers. And I don't, I don't even have a segue for this. So, uh, we're going to try to bring it up a little bit. Uh, talking about some more recent events, Kale, I know you've been very into the world cup and it's, it I started to say it finaled today, but I don't think that's how it goes. So why don't you tell okay. us about that? Uh, today was a really exciting game. In fact, um, I couldn't stop like talking to the screen, even though you know no one can hear me. Um, maybe the neighbors, but I'm sure was, you weren't the only one. It was such an exciting game. So this was the this was the championship, the final game, and it was. France versus Argentina. And um, who was the underdog going in? Because I actually don't know anything. Um, Argentina always brings a strong team. Um, I think, you know, the thing about Argentina is they have Messi, uh, who is really a goat of soccer. And oh, okay. he had not won a World Cup. So I okay. think they had won in like 1978 and 1986. He's been playing probably 17 years. Oh, wow. Anyway, at the end, they ended up having to do penalty kicks because it was tied 3-3. And Argentina got it. They had they got more penalty kicks than, than France, and so they won the game um, and finally got their World Cup. Congrats, Argentina, and to that guy that Kale mentioned that I'm sure everyone else knows. Lionel Messi. <laughs> Um, so that's awesome. Uh, well, for Argentina (laughs) and (laughs) another thing that happened this past week was the finale of white Lotus. We're not going to give any spoilers, but I'm just going to say I liked season two even more than season one. And I usually don't say that. Yeah. You know, I think I would agree with that. And mostly because they were in Italy and Sicily. So I had gone to Italy this summer and, uh, yeah, I was like really feeling the vibe, right? I was worried when it first started that it was going to be like the same plot lines as season one, but it took a different direction and I really liked the actors and I the, just, yeah. I really liked it. The character development on this second season just had more depth and I, so I really too. liked that. Yeah, I I really liked it. We're not going to give anything away, no. but go watch it if you haven't watched it yet. Uh, and then another thing I wanted to mention. Uh, so one of our amazing listeners, Kenneth, messaged us on our Facebook page. And first off, he just had very nice things to say. So thank you, Kenneth. And thanks for listening. Yeah, um, thanks, he was, Kenneth. He was mentioning the Daniel Lind Lagerlof case that Kale, that Kale covered and was saying how he'd been interested in that case for years. And he mentioned a video uh, to look up, which I did on YouTube. It's like a 10 second clip. And it's basically, he said it was similar to the weather conditions the day that Daniel went missing. So I'm watching this video and I mean, sure, it's windy, but I'm like, I don't think that's enough. Like it's, it's 
a group of people standing in that same area um, where he disappeared. And it's windy again. Yes. But I just didn't see how that could contribute to Daniel slipping, falling, Mm -hmm. disappearing. It's really interesting. But anyway, Kenneth, thank you for bringing that to our attention. Thank you so much, Kenneth. And I am, um, I've got my uh, number one Swedish translator, Anna, on the case here. She, I sent her a couple things to to go through and kind of translate and explain to me um, because there was a a lot more articles from, we were saying it Malin, right? Malin. 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 That that sounded very Midwestern. Wow. Okay. Um, I don't know where that came from, (laughs) but um, I think it would be great to hear kind of, you know, her account of things and, you know, what's happened since then. But obviously I don't speak or I don't read Spanish. (laughs) I don't speak or read Swedish. Wow. And apparently I can't say the word either. So yeah, we have got her um, working on that and we will report back for sure because it is something that's awesome. anything that's like has to do with a disappearance and then something unsolved continues to kind of haunt me or like yeah. have me think about. And so I really appreciated um, Kenneth reaching out. Um, and, and I really appreciated that weather video because I love knowing the weather. Yeah. Anna, you've got some homework to do. All right. So shall we get into it? Yeah, I'm I'm ready for part two. You know what? I'm ready to get this out because I really went down a rabbit hole. And I'm just going to say right now, this is going to be a very long episode. And I apologize. And if we get to a point where I feel like maybe I need to break this up, we will. And do like a three. Okay. But I'm going to try to do it all in one. Can you hear me okay? I can. And also, I'll be a time checker. So if I'm looking at the clock and it's really going on. Well, I have, I mean, the clock is right up here. Oh, you can see it too. <laughs> I was just trying to be real helpful like I would in like an IEP meeting or something. But thank you. And now I'm like, oh. I appreciate it. Thanks for the assist. Before we start, I just want to say, well, I, I guess, no, we have started. <laughs> so I said I was going down a rabbit hole. I was looking up videos of Brittany and I found one where she recorded somebody to love for Happy Feet. And as soon as I watched it, I sent it to Kale. I was like, you have to watch this because it is so good. It's so fun. It just encompasses everything about who she was. And so I'm going to link it. It'll be the oh, first just- link on on the show notes. And it's, oh, I can't even tell you. So then I start finding all these other videos and I found clips of her, you know, recording the voiceovers for King of the Hill. I found her screen. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. I'm so sorry. It like came out of nowhere. Holy shit. I thought my, I seriously thought my eyes were going to pop out. Like it just came so fast and out. Like I couldn't even stop it or anything or like move my head or anything. <laughs> Shit. Seriously, I swear my, my face just like. I gotta take a, Your on, I gotta face take a, like went directly into the microphone. It was, just, it was forceful and that's the closest thing I had. Like I was like. 
my god. Oh my god. I'm so oh sorry. God. That had to have, like hurt your ears. I'm so sorry. It didn't hurt my ears. I don't know if it hurt everyone else's ears, but that was really funny. Um, okay, so I'm gonna back up just a second. I'm, so. I, I, so when I was finding these videos and I found like her voiceovers for King of the Hill, I also found her screen test for Janis Joplin. She was 19 years old and it is so good. It's just like a small clip of it. I'm going to link the Somebody to Love video, but feel free to do a deeper dive and, and find some of those because it's just you get you get to see her at her best. So. We ended part one with Brittany reading a script titled The White Hotel. She really liked what she'd read, and so she set up a meeting with the writer, and that writer was Simon Monjack. Before we get into his relationship with Brittany, I want to give some background on him. Simon Mark Monjack was born on March 9th, 1970 in Buckinghamshire, England. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. So were they like almost 10 years apart? She he was born was, in like 79 or 80 maybe or something. No, it's, I, I think it's 77. She would have turned 40. Yeah, it was 77. Oh, okay. So she was, okay. So they weren't, I was thinking like a 10 year type because it wasn't the other guy she was with like 10 years older. Um. Oh, her business manager or talent manager. Uh, he yeah. was 12 years older. Oh, okay. Okay. So I was, ju- I'm just curious. It doesn't really yeah. matter. I just, yeah. Wondered. Simon was like seven or eight years older. Okay. Simon Mark Monjack was born on March 9th, 1970 in Buckinghamshire, England, which I hope I'm pronouncing correctly, and that's a little over an hour's drive from London. Growing up, he dreamed of moving to the United States and becoming a Hollywood heavyweight. He wanted to write, produce, and direct. As a kid, he took piano lessons and horseback riding lessons, and according to his mom, Linda, he excelled in both. She said he was able to read the newspaper by age three, he could speak several different languages, and his IQ was off the charts. But she said he was also quite the charmer and could talk the talk very well. Hmm. Basically, she was like, yeah, my son is gifted, but he's also full of shit. Wow. (laughs) She said all he ever wanted was for people to love him and look up to him and see him for the wonderfully talented filmmaker he knew he could be. But, she said, he always managed to fall short of his own expectations. Interesting. And that's his mom saying that? This is his own mom. Yeah. Did his family stay in England? Yes. Okay. He was the only one who really came He's the only one that moved, yeah. The family lived a pretty cushy lifestyle. Buckinghamshire is one of the most sought-after places to live in. It's considered quite posh. I was thinking it was probably affluent when you were describing all of the activities he was doing. I was like, yeah, pretty expensive hobby. So yeah, exactly. And they had a four-bedroom Georgian-style home. So just to give you an idea, picture the house from Home Alone. That's a Georgian-style home. Whoa. It's like that. Um, also Home Alone is just on the brain because I've probably watched it three times already. So picture that house. They're, they're doing well. Simon's dad, William, was a manager for the U.S. manufacturing company 3M. Oh. 3M produces over 60,000 products ranging from medical wow. and dental products to PPE. I feel like when COVID hit, like suddenly everyone knew the company 3M. 
As for Simon's mom, I've seen two occupations for her, the first being an interior designer and then a hypnotherapist. So it's possible maybe she had a career Hmm. change. Not really sure. Interesting. So if you think back to part one, you can see Simon had a very different upbringing than Brittany. He grew up in a fairly affluent area with both parents there to support him. Brittany was raised by a single mom because her dad was in the Italian mafia and in and out of prison. Sadly, though, tragedy struck Simon and his family when he was just a teenager. His dad died of a brain tumor. Oh. Yeah. Simon had been very close to his dad, and the loss really took its toll on him. According to his mom, Simon's emotional development pretty much stopped when his father died. Linda said, quote, he remained a troubled child for the rest of his life. life. Wow. I mean, that's that's common that that happens, actually, mm-hmm. is that it stunts like that emotional growth when like there's a, traum- a traumatic event. Mm-hmm. At 19, he decided to move from England to the United States to pursue a career in film. One thing his mom said of him was that whenever he set a goal for himself, he had to excel. Otherwise, he wouldn't bother. Mm. He had to shine, so to speak. And if he didn't, he was done. The problem with that is that's not real life. Like, you're not just going to start a new career and be amazing from the get. It takes time. And effort. And effort. And you're going to make mistakes. And you have to learn from those to get better. And there is such a thing as paying your dues, especially in the film industry. Mm -hmm. He's going to need to put in his time. Well, yeah, he needs to if he wants to get where he wants to be. But Simon thought he could skip past all that. Having zero experience in screenwriting, producing, or directing, he used his cunning to charm investors, managing to acquire enough money to make his first film. His own mom loaned him tens of thousands of dollars, which he swore he'd pay back. I mean, that's pretty savvy, to be honest. Like, if you're going to do it, I guess. Well, spoiler alert, he never paid her back. Eh. He takes all this money he's managed to get and he pours it into his first feature film, Two Days, Nine Lives, which he wrote, produced, and directed. You can't say he wasn't ambitious, that's for sure. I can definitely say, though, with his ambition and getting a film out there, I have not seen it, so... Well, it was not good. (laughs) It was only released in the United Kingdom. It did not have a worldwide release, which tells you a little something. In fact, it was so spectacularly bad, a critic for the BBC gave it one star, stating, Ooh. and I'm going to quote what this person said in the review. I'm, I'm condensing it, but this is word for word. Suitable pacing and the right length for a scene elude Mon Jack entirely. So does an ability to push and prod actors. The result is a continuous volley of dead conversations. What a mess. End quote. Oh. So do you think that he took that criticism and thought, huh, I have a lot to learn. Let me see how I can improve. Hmm. No. I'm guessing no, maybe he, did not. No, he went the narcissistic route. I, I'm just guessing. Instead, he bragged about how his film was the best reviewed independent film of all independent films in all of England. He calls that the best review? Mm-hmm. He really took over the fake it till you make it strategy. Well, I wouldn't say he ever actually made it. Okay. So he's at this dinner party in Hollywood, really talking himself up. 
Another guest at the party was screenwriter Allison Burnett. And Allison is interviewed in that HBO documentary. Oh, okay. Allison says that Simon was just so charming. He's got these dinner guests wrapped. In addition to claiming he's created the best movie ever made, essentially, he also casually drops in, oh yeah, my exes, you know, Elle McPherson and Madonna. These guests are like, holy shit, this guy's dated these superstars? Wow. Simon also mentions that in addition to his collection of 17 Ferraris, he also what? owns the largest collection. I can't even say all of this shit with a straight face. He also owns the largest collection of Vermeer paintings. Oh, and he's a billionaire. So is he like another catch me if you can? Like I keep, I feel like this is another. You know uh, what? In, in a way, yes. Yeah. Wow. We'll see later how he gets in trouble t- with the law many times over. Oh. So as far-fetched as all of it sounds, these dinner guests were buying it. That is how good this guy was at manipulating people and charming them to get them to think what he wanted. I mean, his own mom called it out. So like, you know he's good. Yeah. (laughs) You know, if it, right? So, you know, they're finishing up their duck confit. I don't know. (laughs) And you think, I I don't know what they ate at this thing. And you'd think Simon would be done. He's laid out all these wild untruths. What more could he possibly say about himself? Well, I'll tell you. He's like, guys, guys, one more thing. Um, I used to have terminal brain cancer, but I paid like what? a brillion dollars to have this experimental treatment done. Yeah, the doctors just took some cartilage from a shark's fin and gave it to me. And bam, I was cured. What in the flying fuck? Because that's how his dad passed. Well, you kind of hit the nail on the head. So according to his mom... He, she feels that his dad passing when Simon was at just a, such a young age kind of took this effect on him where he felt like he was going to die from the same thing. So he just made up a bunch of lies because he thought he was going to die? He just made up a bunch of lies because he just wanted people to to like, like him, to trust him. And the thing is, People did. And they, they were like, they whoa, that. incredible. You had this shark fin treatment and you're cured. I can't, with the shark fin treatment. Wait, oh, did you look that up? Is that a thing? You know what? Am, or Let's am I do goal? that right okay. now. Because like, I am just like, what if it really is? Okay. Looked it up. So here is what I have. Shark fin has long been used in traditional Asian medicine. Shark fin soup is regarded as a tonic that promotes general well-being, and shark fin has even been claimed to have anti-cancer properties. But I guarantee you, he just Googled that and was like, oh, I'll use this. I got it. Guarantee you. So after the dinner, Alison Burnett calls up a friend of his in England and is like, hey, I just met this filmmaker, amazing guy. He did this film, Two Days, Nine Lives. Have you heard of it? And his friend was like, no, but I'll check it out. How could I miss seeing the best reviewed independent film of all independent films in all of England? So the friend goes to see it and calls up Allison afterwards. And it's like, so saw the movie. It sucked. And Allison's like, huh, God, let me check into this guy. And he finds out from Simon's ex-girlfriend 
that Simon is full of shit and everything he says is a lie. Allison said, I can't stress enough how convincing this man was. I mean, he must have been, especially like, I think like Brittany Murphy, she was clever herself. And I would mm-hmm. think that that she would fly right past a guy like this. That's the thing. He was able to manipulate very intelligent, successful people. And he did it over and over again. So Simon Monjack earned the nickname Conjack in Hollywood circles. Oh, damn. So he's already shot himself in the foot professionally, but in his personal life, he managed to attract really beautiful, smart, independent women. Just one year prior to this infamous dinner party, Simon was dating a woman by the name of Elizabeth Ragsdale. Elizabeth talks about how charming Simon was. The night they met, she said as soon as he started talking, she was captivated. Just two weeks later, two weeks later, he proposed and she said yes. Two weeks after they met. Yep. Okay, I've seen a picture of the dude. I was just I going to find say, him attractive in the least. So neither did she. She walked in and was disappointed, but she said as soon as she sat down and he started talking, she was like, wow, that is the power that this guy was able to have over people. Well, and he has an accent, let me tell you. They're pretty nice. (laughs) I mean, a British accent is not bad, but the words coming out of his mouth are bullshit. The relationship between Elizabeth and Simon wasn't great, and she alludes to some non-consensual sexual experiences. Basically, he raped her. He also made comments about her weight. He bought her a cell phone and told her she could only call him. So he's trying to control her. Exactly. She says that one night in particular, Simon wanted to have sex and she didn't want to. That should be the end of the conversation. Uh, Right. You don't want to? Okay. And then you go to sleep. But not Simon. Simon starts to cry and tells Elizabeth... He has spinal cancer and has to go to Monaco for an experimental treatment using shark fin cartilage. Uh So he's he's a pathological liar as well. Oh, yeah. Narcissist, pathological liar, possible sociopath. I don't know. Yes. Yes. So with Elizabeth, it's spinal cancer. A year later at the dinner party, it's terminal brain cancer. His sob story worked and the two ended up having sex. They talked about having kids, and Simon said, well, we should hurry up and conceive because once I get these shark treatments, I'll be infertile. So they got pregnant. Wait, what? Once I get the shark fin treatments, then it makes him infertile? That's what he said, yeah. This guy is interesting. Elizabeth had a very rough pregnancy in the beginning. She was really sick. She could barely lift her head. So she tells Simon, I want my family here. I need help. But Simon wouldn't allow it. Oh, I don't like that. In fact, he cut her off from everyone. (sighs) Suddenly, no one is able to reach her. I think he thought, why should she see anyone else? She has me. But when Simon claimed to not feel well from his cancer treatments, he would talk Elizabeth into giving him a back rub. So it was always about him getting what he wanted. (laughs) When she was pregnant. Exactly. Oh, he's like... The worst form of codependent, a codependent, controlling. He's a sociopath. Yeah. Elizabeth desperately needed to see a doctor. This is a pregnant woman, but Simon would not take her. 
Thankfully, though, a friend of hers stopped by unexpectedly because she was worried about her because, like, she couldn't get in touch with her. Right. And she told Simon, get her to a doctor or I'll take her myself. So he finally gave in. At that time, Elizabeth was living in France, but she was originally from the U.S. and had previously lived in New York. So Simon convinced her to move back to New York because he was in the States. They're going to get married. They're going to have this baby. They need to be together. So she moves. And when she arrives, she calls Simon and says, I made it. I'm here in New York. And click. He hung up on her. He hung up? Yep. He flat out ghosted her when she was four months pregnant and she never saw him again. Did Okay. So did she have the baby? She had the baby and he never met him. She had a son. That's fucking horrific. Yeah. So she was able to get in touch with his mom, Linda, after like calling him and calling him and not you know, being able to reach him. And Linda basically told her, yeah, he's all lies, but I think he believes his own lies. He's full of shit. I- I'm paraphrasing. Yeah. Elizabeth <laughs> also said that Linda told her she'd hired a PI to follow her son and she found out he never had cancer. There were no treatments and he was already seeing someone else. Does Linda and the son, I don't, obviously I don't know his name, but does she have a relationship with the grandson? I think we can say it. His name's Elijah. Yes. So his mom, according to Elizabeth, did fly to the States, meet with Elizabeth. And met Elijah. I don't know if she met Elijah. She might have. But I don't think that they really had a relationship. (sighs) I wish that they would because I feel like that's like her second chance of like being able to have somebody in her life, you know. Well, also know. Linda lived in England. True. That's true. That's so true. Yeah. There is that distance. That's but the hard. Thing yeah. of, the thing about it all is it pisses me off. He's like, we need to hurry up and have a kid because I'm about to become infertile. And then he abandons her. Exactly. Like he had no Sick. intention of caring for that child. And of yeah. course he was not about to become infertile. So, like, why? Why? He was ill. This man was very mentally ill. And his son with Elizabeth wasn't even his first child. What? Oh, I didn't know that. He already had a daughter from a previous relationship. Her name, uh, the daughter's name, is Jasmine. And Jasmine says that her parents broke up when she was two. They weren't married. Was that back in the UK? Yes. Uh, But she still saw her dad up until age seven. After that, he was living in, I guess, the U.S. She just says he moved abroad. So I think he had gone to the U.S. at that point. point. She never saw him again. And he never gave her mom any money to help raise her and left nothing to them upon his death. Wow. At this point, we know he's got at least two kids that he doesn't care for. Right. Maybe more. Who knows? That's the thing. And according to Cynthia Hill, who directed that HBO documentary, there were several women in which Simon had engaged in, quote, the same pattern of behavior, but they they declined to be in the documentary. Mm. So that tells me that there could be more offspring out there. Yeah. So now we're in 2001 and Simon meets Simone Bien, a beautiful, successful, independent woman. He has a type. Like Simon, Simone was also from England. She was born in London. And she was a renowned relationship expert in the United Kingdom. Interesting. I also love the name Simone. I think it's a beautiful name. It is beautiful. 
She definitely already made a name for herself by the time she met Simon. But just as a side note, in 2011, she became the first female co-host on the show Loveline with Dr. Drew. Oh, She's been a guest on Good Morning America, CNN, HLN. So very independent, very successful. Yeah. She, too, fell for Simon's charm. Oh, damn. And in 2001, they married after just knowing each other three months. He moves fast. Seriously. It's like he meets a woman. He charms her. He marries her all in a matter of a few months or even weeks. With Elizabeth, it was two weeks. So just to reiterate, this is a relationship expert. So you're seeing how he could fool anyone into thinking that he was this dream guy. So slimy. Exactly. Oh, and when you see the picture, it's just so gross. Pretty quickly, Simone realized Simon was not a man she would like to spend the rest of her life with. So she separated from him just five months after they were married. Their divorce wasn't finalized, though, until 2006. And a friend of Simone said he put her through hell during those years. For one thing, he was supposed to pay her a divorce settlement to the tune of $63,000. So he probably paid that right away and was super cool about it, right? Yeah, right. Uh, Yeah. No. Simone had to sue his ass to finally get her money. That's horrible. Perhaps the reason it took him so long to pay it is because he was dealing with a few other legal woes during this time. In 2005, two warrants were issued for his arrest for credit card fraud and theft. Those charges were eventually dropped, and I couldn't find much more on that, so I'm not sure how or why those charges were dropped. In 2006, he was sued by Coots & Company, or Coutts, it's C-O-U-T-T-S. That's a London-based firm that provides private banking and wealth management services. Mm -hmm. He was ordered to pay close to a half a million dollars in the settlement. He was evicted from not one, not two, not three, but four homes between 1997 and 2006. Then comes the movie Factory Girl, which is about Edie Sedgwick when she met Andy Warhol. Oh, I've heard of it. Yeah. The film stars Sienna Miller as Edie and Guy Pierce as Warhol. Okay. Ironically, Brittany Murphy was considered for the role of Edie. It was written by, I hope I'm saying these names right, but I'm probably not, Captain Mausner with a story by Aaron Richard Golub. Factory Girl was directed by George Hickenlooper. But if you look the film up on IMDb, which if you don't know what IMDb is, because I'm probably going to reference it a lot in this podcast, it stands for Internet Movie Database. uh, And you can just find out all kinds of information about movies, shows, whatever. So if you look the film up on IMDb, there is another writer credited as well, Simon Monjack. The thing is... But did he write it? Factory Girl was not written by Simon Monjack. Okay. I'm like, that doesn't sound right. <laughs> you are correct, Kale. Not even the story was by Simon Monjack. But he threatened to sue the production if he didn't get a writing credit because he said they stole the idea of the movie from him. Oh, good grief. There is no record of him ever even so much as writing an outline with this story. I think he literally woke up one day, thought to himself, hey, someone should make a movie about Edie Sedgwick and Andy Warhol. (laughs) Then when he heard about this film, he was like, that was my idea. George Hickenlooper, the director, made a statement that he posted to IMDb saying, quote, 
Monjack had nothing to do with Factory Girl. He filed a frivolous lawsuit against us, making bogus claims that we had stolen his script. He held us literally hostage, and we were forced to settle with him as he held our production over a barrel. Damn. It's like the, it's like they were just like, you know what, given, given so that exactly. we can get this done. Because he was hounding them. And you know, he didn't have any money because he'd been sued and evicted from that. So he just was mm-hmm. like, I'm going to stand strong and get this money because I need it actually to be able to, I guess, survive or whatnot. But damn. Having his name attached to that kind of film gave him some clout. Yep. Clout. Yep. Simon, of course, denies these claims by George, but we'll see later that he likes his lawsuits, that one. It, I'm not shocked. Also, the more that you that you communicate this story and like, you know, the, the background, mm-hmm. the more in my head as it's going forth, I'm like, how did Brittany entangle herself with this guy? Like, I just. Ugh. That's the thing. It's so easy to think that. But when you see his pattern and you see all of these very intelligent, highly successful, independent people who actually do have money, who actually do have clout, they all fall under his spell. Yeah. So I can definitely see how she did. So meanwhile, Simon starts using this bogus writing credit to attract investors in the film industry for, you know, all those hit movies he's making. He ended up hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. debt. Mm -hmm. All of this was going on with Simon just prior to him meeting Brittany Murphy. During this time in 2006, Brittany was still working on King of the Hill. The music video for Faster Kill Pussycat was released, and she had four movies come out that year, including Love and Other Disasters and Happy Feet. Seriously, go watch that video I mentioned. It's so good. Yeah. The director of Love and Other Disasters, Alex Kashishian, I hope that's how you say it, spoke with People Magazine in an interview that was released just this past Friday. In it, he says, quote, Brittany was an amazing light, but she had a lot of demons. Mm. So let's remember back to part one. Hollywood was not always kind to Brittany, as is the case for many young women there. She was constantly being criticized for her looks. First, she was too fat. Then she was too thin. She was accused of having an eating disorder, of doing cocaine. She also went through a very painful and public breakup with Ashton Kutcher. Not to mention the fact that she had been working professionally since she was a child. She was the breadwinner of the family Mm -hmm. and her mother's caretaker. So that's a lot. I think anyone would struggle with their mental health under those circumstances. Absolutely. So this director, Alex Kashishian, said he actually considered shutting down production on the film, but then thought about how that would put 70 crew members out of work. So they kept going. I can um, feel that a lot of respect for somebody who recognizes that. It is hard because so many people are involved in a production that if one person is late, mm-hmm. I mean something so small one person is late it throws the day so if you have someone who is sick or needs to be out for a few days particularly if that is your star right you are you are putting the lives and the livelihoods of dozens and dozens if not Mm -hmm. hundreds of other people you know on the fence or i'm not sure that's the right metaphor but I get what you're saying. So this director, he just directed the Selena Gomez documentary, My Mind and Me. Oh, 
Mm-hmm. I watched that. And he said he saw a lot of similarities between the two women. So he mm-hmm. actually did shut down production when he saw Selena struggling. He said, I hope that I've gotten wiser with age and I hope that I'm more compassionate. So we know the mindset Brittany was in at this point. She was struggling. She was at a low point. And remember, she had just been engaged twice, but both Mm -hmm. engagements were broken off. And you might also remember that Ashton Kutcher said he had never met anyone who wanted to get married more than Brittany. Enter Simon Monjack. (laughs) Brittany had just read his script for The White Hotel, which magically had just come across her desk. Hmm. I am sure Simon engineered that. Oh, yeah. Because as we learn later in a creepy-ass interview he gave after she died, he had, quote, kept an eye on her since she was 17 years old. Oh. A child. He earned his creep badge a long time ago. Oh, yeah. Once the two of them met to discuss the script, they were inseparable. Brittany found him quite charming. Here's this man. He's a little older. He seems to have it all together. He's supposedly a billionaire, so she doesn't have to worry about him going after her money. And he survived the the, the shark fin. You know, I don't know if he told her about that. <laughs> Uh, And he seems like someone who could take care of her for a change. Her mom, Sharon, approved, which, you know, Brittany was not going to do anything without Mama Sharon's approval. Yes. And Simon didn't seem to mind that moving in with Brittany meant moving in with her mom, too, because Brittany and Sharon lived together in that big old mansion. Mm -hmm. He was probably like, oh, thank God for some shelter. I think that's exactly what he thought, actually. (laughs) Brittany's friends grew concerned when she started dating Simon. Allison Burnett, that filmmaker I mentioned, who Mm -hmm. was at that dinner party, said he actually called up Britney's agent and was like, hey, you need to warn her about this guy. She needs to know that Conjack over there is a compulsive liar. And the agent said her manager had tried warning her and she fired him as a result, which I'm sure Simon persuaded her to do. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Kathy and Jimmy said that when Britney was at work on King of the Hill, Everybody was kind of scared and freaked out by how quickly and deeply Brittany had fallen for this guy. Kathy said, who was he and what was happening? She wanted to marry him. And I said, honey, it's not been long enough. Just a couple months after they began dating in February 2007, Simon was arrested and went to jail because his visa had expired. What was he arrested for? Do we know? His visa had expired. Oh, just okay for that. Okay. Brittany paid to bail him out. A few weeks later, Simon calls his mom, Linda, and says, guess what? Brittany and I got married. (sighs) Linda was upset that she hadn't been invited to her son's wedding. But as it turns out, no one was. There was no wedding. Oh, there was a wedding. Oh, there was a wedding, but no one was there. But no one was invited. They hadn't even announced their engagement and no friends were present. And Brittany's like 20s at this point? Uh, She was 29. 29? Okay. I'm pretty sure it was just Sharon and the rabbi. And I feel like Simon used her to get a green card. Yeah. Well. That's just my. I was going to bring that up earlier. And then I was like, oh, I don't know where the story's going. So I just Mm -hmm. keep my mouth shut on that one. But I wondered. Once it was announced they had wed, you know, it's all over the tabloids and magazines. Yeah. Elizabeth Ragsdale, the woman he ghosted, Mm -hmm. was riding the train home from work. And she pulls out her Us Weekly magazine, just like a little light reading after work. And one of the headlines was, Brittany Murphy, married to a con man. Oh. She said the first thought that came to her mind was 
that poor woman. Oh, yeah. As soon as she got home, she started writing a letter to Brittany. Really? Yeah. Telling her Simon was a liar, he had cheated on her, and then abandoned her when she was four months pregnant with their kid. And then after she wrote it, she was like, Brittany, she's going to think I'm some random coming out of the woodwork trying to get money from her from my kid. She's She might not even believe any of this. Yeah. So she never sent the note. Oh, damn. Even if she had, though, I don't think Brittany would have. She wouldn't have. No. Yeah. Because you got to see it for yourself. She wouldn't have believed it. Yeah. Yeah. All of Brittany's friends thought it was weird that, one, she had gotten married in such a hurry, and two, that she hadn't invited anyone to the wedding. There was no big party or reception or anything. Just knowing Brittany and how bubbly and outgoing she was, it just seems like she would want to celebrate getting Mm -hmm. married. But she wasn't really herself during this time. She was kind of at a low point. So maybe she did feel more comfortable just keeping it private. I don't know. It was around this time that Brittany called up her good friend, George Hickenlooper, the director of Factory Girl. The director, yeah. She calls him up at three o'clock in the morning in tears. And George oh. says, what's wrong? And Brittany says, you have to take that post down from IMDb where you claim that Simon had nothing to do with Factory Girl and that he threatened to sue. And that's why you gave him a writing credit. She's begging him. She says, it'll ruin him. And if you ruin him, you ruin me. And George said, but it's true. Right. And then he went on to say Simon has a long, long list of legal complaints against him. But she's crying and she doesn't want to hear any of it. So George agreed to take it down only because he considered Brittany a good friend. Good friend. And he could tell this was really bothering her. And at this point, we assume, I mean, she loves him. However, I'm curious, like, he just sounds, he's such a sketchy guy. I'm curious if he, like, threatened her and then had her do things to help him. I wouldn't you know, would have asked him at all. Because he's so controlling. Before George hung up the phone with her, he said, do you know this guy? I mean, do you really know him? Do you know what you were doing by marrying him? And at that point, Brittany got angry and said, I know him better than anyone. And she hung up on him. Yeah, the, ang- the anger factor. I'm just saying, because you feel like somebody's not supporting you and your judge of character. Exactly. Yeah. That's hard. It's why, like, when your friend is dating someone who you just know is all wrong, it's mm-hmm. like you feel torn because you don't want to, you don't want to say anything. Because what if they get married and then you're the asshole who was right. like, that guy is not great. You're in a tough place. So George tried calling her back a few months later just to check in, see how she was doing, but Simon answered and wouldn't let him speak to her. Ugh. I guarantee you Simon made her call George because that is not something she would have done on her own. I know. It doesn't sound very, like, natural of her to do. Also, I don't think she would have even known about that post on IMDb. It's not like Brittany Murphy is scrolling IMDb at 3 in the morning. Yeah. Oh, my God. But But Simon would. Oh, yeah. Brittany was nothing if not loyal. She even said that when she's in a relationship, she has blinders on. Her focus is that person. Shortly after they married, Simon was sued by a casting director over a bounced check. And guess who paid the casting director? It was Brittany Murphy. Brittany paid the casting director $10,000. Damn. I mean, this isn't just like, you know, $100 or even 1000 Oh, no. This is tens of thousands. Those who had previously been close with Brittany grew worried when it became impossible to get in touch with her. 
Suddenly, she didn't have an email address anymore. Suddenly, she no longer had a cell phone. And if someone tried to call the landline at the house, because they did have a landline, they wouldn't have much luck there either because Simon had disconnected it. Her mom, how did her mom, like, I mean, she was living there. So how did, how did that relationship go? Sharon was under the spell. Mm. Sharon, who's been a single mom all of Britney's life, here is this guy. He's, the, he's like, I'm a billionaire and I'm going to take mm-hmm. care of you ladies. She was right there with Britney. Yeah. So Britney's own business manager, Jeffrey Morganroth, could not contact her when he needed to. There was a tax form that she was supposed to sign and it was getting right down to the deadline. So he goes over to her house personally. Guess who answers the door? Simon. And he wouldn't let Jeffrey see Britney. He took the form from him and said Britney couldn't come down because her hair was messed up. What? Then Britney yells down from upstairs. Hi, Jeff. Sorry I couldn't see you. Bye. It was weird. She no longer met up with girlfriends to grab lunch or go to a spa. She wasn't going out dancing dancing like she had once enjoyed. She wasn't going out at all. I was going to say, she doesn't sound like she, she sounds like a homebody. Like she doesn't leave the house. Once she got with Simon, she basically just stayed in her house 24-7 with Simon and Sharon and her dog, Clara. Simon liked to stay up late and he would do these creepy photo shoots in the middle of the night with her where he would dress her up like a doll. And take pictures of her. Dress Britney up like a doll? Yeah. Since when does a grown-ass man refer to his wife as a doll that he likes to dress? Dress up. That's the thing. That's that that creep factor. The only times Britney went out was to go to work, which Simon drove her to. And he probably selected what she was going to do. Oh, yeah. He started telling her which projects to take. Yeah. When he would drive her to work, he would then sit and wait there for her all day. Ew. Anytime she had a break, she wasn't off working on her lines or eating lunch with the rest of the cast. No. She was out there with him. She would go out to the car and sit with Simon. And that's sad because now her name is just attached to him and everything that she was about. It's it's just sad. That's the problem. Yeah. And when he would drive her home, Brittany was always hesitant about staying in that house. Yeah. It was haunted. If you remember from part one, Britney Spears was the former tenant of the house, and she felt like there were bad spirits there, which is why she abruptly moved out. Leaving her furniture there. I remember that. Yeah. Brittany Murphy also had a bad feeling about the house. She felt it was unlucky. And she would always ask, can't we just stay in the Beverly Hills Hotel or something? But Simon would say, no, we have this big, beautiful mansion. We're going to live in it. Simon also played into her fears of the house by claiming they were being spied on by the government. Oh, boy. Simon believed and subsequently made Brittany believe, well, and Sharon, too, actually, that the government had targeted them because they had given support to a woman who worked for Border Patrol. Her name's Julia Davis. She was a whistleblower that had that had exposed a security breach in 2004, well before Simon and Brittany got together. Simon felt it was these government spies or whatever that had tried to have him deported. And there's a lot more to this. I'm just not going to go into it here, but you can definitely find more about this particular security breach in the aftermath online. So in response to feeling like the government is after them, Simon installed 56 security cameras inside and outside the house, along with a scrambling device that would encrypt their conversations so these quote-unquote spies 
couldn't hear what they were saying. He is delusional. It's, uh, yeah. I mean, it just seems so far-fetched. And, you know, when you're, like, when I'm researching all this stuff, I'm just like, how does, like, how? But then you have to think, like, Britney's state of mind, where she was in Mm -hmm. her life. If her mom is all for this guy and she, you know, looked up to her mom. Yeah, I, I can see how people can fall into that trap. Yeah. Simon was quickly gaining complete control over both Brittany and her mother. They both started deferring to Simon. Everything went through him. Simon even convinced Brittany to fire her entire team, her agents and managers, because he said he was going to manage her from now on. So not only is he trying to control her, but he's also putting himself on the payroll. Of course he is. (laughs) He starts telling her she needs to lose weight. She needs to cap her teeth. She needs to change this or that. This is a man she loves, that she trusts, and already she has self-image issues. So he gets in her head and she starts losing more weight. Tabloids can't leave it alone. There are more accusations of an eating disorder More claims that she's using cocaine, Mm -hmm. news that she fired her whole team. Hollywood has labeled her as difficult now. Meanwhile, she'd been working on the film Tinkerbell, which was an animated film by Disney, and she voiced the title character. This was the first time Tinkerbell would be given a voice. And Brittany said, quote, I've had the good fortune of playing many interesting characters, but none as magical as Tinkerbell. To give Tinkerbell a voice for the first time in history is such an honor. But the film wasn't coming out. There were all these delays. Mainly there was a huge shakeup in leadership at Disney. So things out of Britney's control. Right. But the next thing you know, Disney announces the movie's release with Mae Whitman voicing Tink. And it became understood within the industry that Disney didn't want to be associated with someone labeled as a drug user, who was also married to a man that has all these legal troubles. Disney claims that she simply quit the film due to a scheduling conflict. So, you know, there's that. Make of that what you will. Right. Tinkerbell wasn't the only movie in which she was replaced. Happy Feet 2 was in the works, and it was assumed Britney would reprise her role as Gloria. Like Disney, however... Warner Brothers didn't want the bad press that Britney brought to the table, particularly the rumors about cocaine usage. So they told her she would not be coming back. She was devastated. Yeah, especially if you're not, I mean, if you're not using, you just, you know, you want your role back. And the thing is, I don't think she ever used cocaine. I really don't. I don't either. I I feel like it's not something that she would do unless somehow somebody was manipulating her to do something like that. I don't know. I don't know. I just feel like she was more of a wholesome person. Um, But who knows? I don't know. Mm -hmm. So she cried for hours at the news that she would not be in Happy Feet 2 because she had loved working on the first one. The movie was released two years after Britney's death with singer Pink in the role of Gloria. It was released in 2011, and a lot of reports state that Britney was replaced because of her passing, but that wasn't the case. She had been Right. It was before that. Okay. On top of that, in 2009, Britney was also written out of the movie The Expendables. She was set to play the girlfriend of Mickey Rourke's character, and the two of them had worked together before in both Spun and Sin City. It's unclear if she was dropped from the film because of what the tabloids were saying or if producers just didn't feel a need for her character. Mm -hmm. 
But regardless, Brittany was suffering one setback after another in her career. It was like this really bad game of dominoes. And and Simon was the the pusher of the dominoes. Mm -hmm. On top of that, she has the added pressure of being the caregiver to not only her mom, who was dealing with neuropathy at this point, but also to Simon, who claimed to suffer from seizures. For pretty much all of 2009, Simon would have seizures as a result of falling from a ladder, question mark. Hmm. Simon also claimed the seizures were tied to brain tumors. So he has a lot oh, going on. Right. <laughs> Got to get that shark fin out again. I know. Where, where's the cartilage? <laughs> when he would have one of these seizures, his arms and legs would flail about and Brittany would rush to his side. She basically had to climb on top of him to hold him down because he weighed 325 pounds. Wait, what? She weighed 115 pounds. So she's like climbing on top of him to try to subdue, subdue him. She then used a spoon to keep him from swallowing his tongue. This happened repeatedly. Huh. So things are kind of spiraling at this point. But rather than be surrounded by people who could bring her out of that, Simon was there just feeding on her vulnerability mm -hmm. and her loyalty to him. And Sharon was underneath the spell, too. He quickly gained more control over her life and career. He started advising her on which roles she should take, like we talked about earlier, telling her how to dress, even insisting that he take over as her makeup artist and hairstylist on set. This guy has never done makeup what? or hair in his <laughs> life. But he's like, I got this, everybody. Leave it to me. Oh, my God. What a trip. An actual makeup artist, Trista Davis, that was working on one of Britney's films, had to run in and fix the job he'd done. Because when Britney walked onto the set. She was like, hell no. She had red lipstick smeared all around the outer edges of her mouth. Her blush was caked on. And her hair was all greasy. That's how Simon had made her. That's nuts. And Trista said he wouldn't even watch the monitors during shooting. So, like, you have to watch the monitors to see if anything changes, if she needs touch-ups, etc. Instead, he just stared blankly, like in a catatonic state. Trista said she snapped her fingers right in front of his face and he didn't even flinch. Wow. Like, what? I This... I mean, this is a this is a path. It's something. I don't even know what path we're on at this point. Not a good one. Yeah. Simon also forbade Brittany from doing any love scenes with another actor. In one of her final films, Across the Hall, she refused to kiss her co-star, saying she wouldn't kiss anyone that wasn't her husband. So what happens when when that kind of demand is out there? Like they say, okay, we'll just get a stunt. Or like your stand-in or whatever. And I mean, that's your job. Exactly. The director wasn't having it. Alex Merkin uh, was the one directing the film. He was ready to fire her. So he walks outside to where Simon is waiting. With an earshot, gets on the phone and loudly starts talking about he's ready to drop Brittany from the film. Because she wouldn't, she won't kiss the co-star. Like enough for her to hear or for Simon for to hear? For Simon to hear. Okay. Yeah. I mean, he did it intentionally. Yeah. Yeah. So, of course, Simon immediately goes to Alex. And he's like, oh, let me talk to her. We can work this out. She'll do whatever you want. Brittany's coworkers noticed the negative impact Simon had on her when she would go out 
uh, and, you know, in between takes and sit with Simon, she'd come back onto the set and just be in a completely different mood. Like she could start the day out, you know, really light and happy to be there and energetic. And then she'd sit with Simon, come back in. And it was like Jekyll and Hyde. It was, she was just completely down, just insecure. It was, it was scary. It's unfortunate because it's like a spell is on her. Like she, exactly. That's what this guy did. She was becoming thinner and thinner to the point where, according to a makeup artist that worked with her, she could barely stand. She was oh, gaunt. Wow. The last time Kathy and Jimmy saw her, she said, I didn't recognize her anymore. Brittany was just cloudy and gone. Oh, this is heartbreaking. It's awful. Brittany's last time on set was for a film called The Caller that was shooting in Puerto Rico. Brittany, Simon, Sharon, and their dog, Clara, all flew down. As soon as filming started, Simon showed up to the set apparently intoxicated and was reportedly very disruptive. I read in a couple of reports that he even hit someone, but I don't know if that's what happened. Regardless to say, he was definitely drunk. Mm -hmm. Production told Brittany to get Simon off the set, but she refused. So they fired her just two days after filming had begun. Oh, wow. Reports start swirling. Brittany Murphy fired from the latest film because of husband Simon's behavior. And remember how earlier I said Simon liked to threaten lawsuits? Yeah. He slapped one on the... He had his lawyer call producers and threaten to sue unless they made a statement that the parting of ways was mutual and that Brittany wanted out because the film had turned into a horror film and she wouldn't do horror. I cannot. It's like the most ridiculous thing so the three of them and the dog hung out in puerto rico for a few days after she was fired and used the time as sort of a family vacation however during this time simon and sharon came down with flu-like symptoms on the flight back to la it was reported that paramedics had to board the jet after simon became quote incoherent simon stated to the daily mail that that was a lie that he just had an asthma attack Interestingly Mm. enough, he went on Larry King shortly after Britney's death death, and said that he had a heart attack on that flight back. So which is it? Who knows? Asthma attack, heart attack. Same thing, right? (laughs) Right. Oh, no. Shortly after they got back to L.A., Britney came down with a bug. But rather than going to a doctor, she relied on prescription drugs to help her feel better. She and Simon apparently practiced their own form of what they considered to be holistic healing, which really just meant they avoided doctors and managed to get a variety of medications using different names. Simon had her believe it was best she not be seen going to a doctor because, quote, paparazzi might get a shot of her and everyone would think she was sick, which could hurt her chances of getting jobs. God, he is just. Mm -hmm. So instead, Simon liked to stay up late and he would keep her up with him. They'd order food at two or three in the morning. They'd stay up all night watching TV. She was clearly not getting the rest she needed. This went on for six weeks and Brittany was getting progressively worse. Yeah. On the Larry King interview, Simon says Brittany just had a bit of laryngitis. And he said... I have no idea what to do with laryngitis. I'm a rabbi, not a doctor. I pray instead of prescribe. So you're a rabbi now? This guy is like 
uh, he's a hypochondriac. I think he has Munchausen. I think there's so much going on with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's interesting that you say Munchausen's because his mom later said that she thinks he had it. I mean, the more you've gone on with this, I I labeled it because it fits all the categorical categorical. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, all the categories of of what it is to have Munchausen. Like more and mm-hmm. more, I was listening, and I'm like, holy, sh- it's a lot. And so he says he's not a doctor. He says he didn't know what to do with laryngitis. So call a doctor. They can tell you what to do. He's neglecting her. Exactly. This is like, this is what child neglect would look like and malnourishment. This is what people get arrested for. It's so scary. It's terrifying. And he's acting like her parent. I know that she's of age, but like she can't even take care of herself right now. She's too weak. But he didn't call a doctor. Brittany, however, did. She'd spoken with a doctor a few times and consulted a pharmacist, but she wasn't improving. She even called Linda, her mother-in-law, telling her that she was having trouble breathing. She said if she walked up a flight of stairs, she was completely out of breath. And she asked Linda, do you think I'm dying? Linda said, no, but you need to go see a doctor. Yeah. Brittany talked with her mother, Sharon, about it as well and decided, you know what? I do need to go see a doctor. So on the afternoon of December 18th, which was a Friday, Brittany made an appointment for the following Monday, but she would never make it there. Now, the following is from Alex Ben Block. He is an award-winning journalist, an author, and at the time, he was the senior editor of The Hollywood Reporter. He was also very close to Brittany and her mom. He'd known the family since 1992 when Brittany Mm -hmm. was just 14 because she was good friends with his daughter. Brittany and Sharon became part of Alex's extended family. They often had dinners together, celebrated birthdays, and spent holidays together. Alex was also one of the people Brittany recruited to donate blood when her mom was in the hospital battling cancer, and he was the one to give the eulogy at Brittany's funeral on Christmas Eve. Oh. So I state all of that so that you know this is a credible source. Mm -hmm. He got the following information from speaking with Sharon and Simon, uh, but said that he realized everything Simon told him was exaggerated or a flat-out lie. So, Brittany's made the appointment on Friday afternoon to see the doctor Monday. The next evening, Saturday night, the family did what they usually did. They sat around the house. Brittany wore her pink Beverly Hills hotel robe over her monkey pajamas. <sighs> they watched three movies, It's Complicated, Public Enemies, and The Princess and the Frog. Okay. And a, a wide range of stuff yeah. going on. They ordered Thai food, which was Brittany's favorite, and Sharon made some soup as well for Brittany to eat. It was a chilly and windy Saturday night. The house was prone to power outages, and this night was no different. The power kept going out, and the backup generator failed, so they had to use flashlights to get around. Brittany had taken several over-the-counter and prescription drugs to try and treat her, quote, laryngitis, as well as medicine that she took anyway just in her regular routine. These included seizure medication, biaxin, which is an antibiotic, Mm -hmm. migraine pills, cough medicine, a nasal spray, Prozac, Clonopin, an anti-inflammatory, a beta blocker Simon had given her, and Vicoprofen she used for menstrual cramps. Around 2.15 a.m., there was a blackout in the Hollywood Hills, which affected Brittany's home. 
She had dozed off, but at three o'clock in the morning, the power came back on. And you know how jarring that can be, Mm -hmm. especially if you're asleep. All of a sudden, all the lights come on, the TV's going. So this did wake Brittany up. She really wasn't feeling well at this point. So she stepped outside to the balcony that was just off the bedroom to try and get some fresh air. She told Simon she wanted her mom. So Simon calls for her and Sharon goes out to the balcony. Sharon found Brittany lying on the patio trying to catch her breath. Sharon said, baby, get up. And Brittany said, mommy, I can't catch my breath. Help me. Help me. I wish Sharon had called an ambulance right then. Like 911. Me too. But unfortunately, that did not happen. According to Simon, Brittany then said, I'm dying. I'm going to die. Mommy, I love you. Still, no one called an ambulance. Why didn't her mom call one? I... Sharon was under the spell. Yeah. Sharon and Simon did not really take Brittany seriously. Seriously. Mm-hmm. Because they said she frequently complained about ailments. Sharon said well, she was always so dramatic. Simon used oxygen. He had an oxygen tank next to his side of the bed. Who the fuck has an oxygen tank just hanging out? I, I mean, unless you need one. I don't think he actually needed one. I think he acquired it by some unlawful means. Brittany asked if she could use the oxygen, but Simon said no because her heart could stop with oxygen. Could it? I don't think so. No. (laughs) And right at that moment, Simon had one of his seizures. Oh, Jesus Lord. According to Sharon, it was a long, horrific seizure. Wow. I hate everything about this. First, I hate that no one called 911. Brittany literally said she was dying Mm -hmm. and they just shrugged their shoulders. Second, like I said, don't buy that Simon ever needed oxygen. I don't buy that he had seizures. I think he used that whenever he wanted the attention on him and he wanted to be the one being cared for. Yep. A manipulation tactic. Again, that narcissism. Like, Yep. So at this point, Sharon goes to make Brittany some hot tea with ginger and lemon. Sharon said her lips were parched, like she was dehydrated. So I made her drink that. Uh, yeah, she was more than dehydrated. At 7.30 a.m., so a, f- a few hours later, Brittany went into the bathroom. Sharon followed her in and Brittany said, Mommy, I really don't feel well. They're in there for a few minutes. And then Brittany asks her mom to hug her. And as Sharon reached out to her, Brittany collapsed onto the floor. Brittany then began vomiting a lot of what appeared to be water. Sharon describes it as water. Okay. Sharon screams out to Simon. He comes in. He pulls Brittany into the shower and turns on cold water, thinking that was going to revive her. Call 911. Oh, my God. It's driving me crazy. Sharon then calls 911. The entire 911 call, all eight minutes and 22 seconds, is online. I'm going to link it because I think it is very interesting. I need to If you read don't it. like to hear that kind of thing, I totally get it. Well, you can hear it. I mean, it's not Oh, oh, you can oh, hear oh. it. I can hear it. Okay. Um, but if you don't like to hear that kind of thing, totally get it. You don't have to click on the link. But a few key moments. When the 911 operator first asks what's going on, Sharon says, somebody's passed out. He says, someone's passed out. She says, yeah, someone, my daughter's passed out. 
Which is just weird that she says somebody. Somebody. It, I get it because you're, you're in a traumatic. That's the thing. You're yeah. in a moment. Okay. Like you're not Who exactly knows how I would react. cool and yeah. collected. Yeah. Yeah. That's the thing. So, okay. Yeah. Then he asks, how old is her daughter? And Sharon says 30. But Brittany was 32, which is also oh, weird to me. Okay. But again, sure. I, I'm not but, in that position. Yeah. So who knows? He asks if anyone saw what happened. And she says no. And then says Brittany was dizzy. She's had a cold. Wasn't she in there? And wasn't Simon in there? Yeah. It's weird. Simon starts doing compressions. And the 911 operator is counting, like telling him how fast he needs to go. Okay. How to do it and whatever. Okay. Simon is going so slow. Like the operator is like, one, two, three. And Simon's like, one, two. It's very strange. The operator starts saying, that's too slow, that's too slow. Eventually, Simon just stops counting altogether. Despite the operator repeatedly telling Sharon that he needed to hear how fast Simon was pumping. At one point, Sharon puts the operator on hold because she thought she heard another phone ringing. What? It's 911. You don't put them on hold. And the operator, she comes back, and the operator asks Sharon if Brittany was taking any medications. Sharon says, what? He asks again, has she taken any medications? And Sharon says no. So those are just some things that stood out to me. Again, you can listen to the entire call. I'm going to link it. When paramedics arrived, they detected a slight pulse in Brittany. Oh. She was still alive, but barely. I didn't. I don't think I knew that. Yeah. They rushed her to Cedars-Sinai Medical Center, but unfortunately it was too late and doctors were unable to save her. So it's often reported she died in the home. She did not. Mm. Technically, she died at the hospital shortly after 10 a.m. Yeah, that's where I think I assumed. Mm -hmm. So that account I just gave of what happened the morning she died was from that journalist, Alex Ben Block, the family friend, Mm -hmm. based on what Sharon herself told him. Sharon later denied his account that she didn't get help right away, saying how dare he accuse her of not doing everything she could to save her daughter. Many people thought it was a drug overdose. Suspicion also turned to Simon. People knew him as a con. He was shady. They felt he must have been responsible somehow for her death. And he and Sharon began making the interview rounds. Yeah. First, Simon invited Radar online into the home and gave a weird-ass video tour of the house. He even took them into the bathroom where she collapsed, and he says, she fell right here. Then he goes through her clothes. He's pulling out pieces and saying things like, oh, this one's nice, Louis Vuitton. Oh, I've never seen her wear this. It, it's the most bizarre thing. He's smoking a cigar the whole time. It's just like, what Ugh. is happening? But one thing stands out to me more than anything. So... Do you remember back in part one, I talked about an interview she did with Cosmo and the interviewer asked, what's something your friends tease you about? And Brittany answered, I'm a clean freak and a germaphobe. Germaphobe, yeah. And I said, just keep that in the back of your brain. Well, in this weird ass video tour Simon gave, you can see the house is filthy. There are piles of clothes everywhere. Every inch of that bathroom was covered in makeup bottles, perfumes. The whole place is disgusting. The sheets on the bed were found to be all twisted and drenched with sweat. There are half-drunk bottles of water on the nightstand, prescription bottles in different names, some open, some empty, along with used tissues. How long was this after she passed? Like a month? 
I'm not sure when he gave the interview. It's talked about in that HBO documentary. So they might say in there how much time had passed. Um, It's just, it's very weird. And no telling how long they'd been living like that. It's right. It's not a place of health and wellness by any stretch. At the time of Brittany's death, there were over 90 prescription bottles on the nightstands. Nightstands are not huge. Every inch must have been covered with prescription bottles. Remember, Sharon told the 911 operator Brittany hadn't taken any medications, but she absolutely had. had. Another fact that came to light was that after Brittany died, Sharon moved into the bedroom with Simon and the two shared a bed. Wait, can you say that again, even though I'm pretty sure I heard you right? I don't want to because it's gross, but I'll say it again. After Brittany died, Sharon moved into the bedroom with Simon and the two shared a bed. They shared a bed. A bed. That is repulsive. It's so gross. They both admitted this, saying that they were just comforting each other. But Sharon later denied that this ever happened. That's some kind of comfort. Did it go further than just lying next to each other? I honestly don't know. Whether they were having sex or not, though, is just creepy. You're sleeping in your dead daughter's bed with her husband. With her husband. And on top of that, I I mean, I myself was on um, some pain medication when I watched the documentary. Mm -hmm. And I kind of was in and out of it. I'm not going to lie. There were times where I had fallen asleep. There were times where Mm -hmm. I'd be like, what? And thinking, this is is the most bizarre, oddest thing. Like, as the documentary went on and you're learning all these, like, oddities. Yeah. You're like, did I just imagine that this happened? Right? Because it seems so far-fetched. So far-fetched. I was like, wait, did I just hear that right? So I had to repeat it. Sorry. Um, That's fine. It's repulsive. That's not all. So on some of those pill bottles that are next to the bed, some of them have the name Sharon Monjack on them. Wait, what? She was using his last name. Why? Wait. Well, for one, they all used multiple names because they were drug shopping. They were getting their prescription meds from several different pharmacies. Under different names. And you can, in some some drugs, I don't know what kind they were getting, like prescription drugs or whatever. You can only get so many. I mean, even right. I had to have special permission to get stuff on after a surgery, right? But to Ew. use Sharon Monjack, it's so gross. It's so gross. You a Smith or something. I don't know. It just, right? Ugh. Like, why, why? Why? I don't know. Sharon and Simon went on Larry King. I'll, I'll try to link it. It is the creepiest interview I have ever seen. When you watch it, knowing that his wife and her daughter had just died, it just makes you go, what? So in it, Simon talks about his love for Brittany, saying that he met her when she was 17, but she was, quote, too young to touch. So he watched her from afar as she dated other men. It's disgusting. He often talks about her as though she was a little girl, a child. Wait, I have a question. Mm -hmm. Did Simon and Sharon know each other before he met Brittany? Like, is there is there some kind of backstory to them at all, or like if they had a relationship prior, a relationship, or even just like maybe it was all calculated in a weird way of like, hey, I want you to like date my daughter, and like, 
Or I don't I think don't, there was I don't any know. of that. I don't think there was any of that. No. Okay. I just wondered. It feels like they would they would have known each other, or maybe they had. I don't know. Something just seems so off. Everything is off. Everything is off. There you go. (laughs) True. At one point, Larry King says to Simon, you know, some have labeled you a Svengali. And Simon kind of chuckles and says, a Svengali. I should be so lucky. What? What? I I don't, I don't, I don't understand this guy's thought process. I don't want to actually. Yeah. Simon didn't help his case when he initially requested that Brittany not be autopsied. He said, how could you cut her up, this beautiful body, curvy in all the right places? It's the way he says it. It And wouldn't you want to know, like, if your wife just at 32 years old dropped dead? dead yeah. Sorry to be blunt, but that's pretty much what happened. Don't you want to find out why? Why? Yeah. Authorities did do an autopsy, though, because that's their job. Because, right. Prior to the release of the autopsy results, Simon claimed Hollywood is what killed Britney, specifically Warner Brothers Studios. What the fuck? If, if, he ha- if he's saying Hollywood and meaning himself, well, the shoe fits. He said that Warner Brothers dropping Britney from Happy Feet 2 devastated her and caused her to die from a broken heart. And it likely did. However, um, Oh, I, I 100% like- believe Hollywood factored into it, yes. just the way it treated her, but... There's more to it, and he's involved in that. Just a few weeks after her death in January of 2010, Simon even threatened to file a wrongful death lawsuit against the studio, because he loves his lawsuits. <laughs> Ed Winter was the assistant chief coroner and has been dubbed Hollywood's coroner because he has assisted in a lot of whole pro- high-profile cases, including Michael Jackson, Corey Haim, and Whitney Houston. Oh, wow. He did work on Britney's case and was interviewed quite a bit afterwards, but the Emmy that actually performed the autopsy, that examined her, that ran the tests, that determined the cause of death, was a woman by the name of Dr. Lisa Shinen. She was the deputy medical examiner or forensic pathologist. Dr. Shinen found no evidence of alcohol or any drugs of abuse in Brittany's system. She did find prescription and over-the-counter medications and determined Mm -hmm. that the adverse physiological effects of those drugs would have affected Brittany in her already weakened state. I was going to say because of the weakness of Mm -hmm. her body and... And just, you know, she had been sick. So Exactly. It's also noted on the report that Brittany was thin, but not underweight. She was 115 pounds, which for her height was considered within normal range. Dr. Shinen checked Brittany's hemoglobin levels. For an adult female, the normal range is 12 to 15.5. I've also seen it as 12.1 to 15.1. Brittany's hemoglobin level was three. Oh, This indicates severe anemia. Brittany suffered from extremely heavy periods and sometimes had two periods in a month instead of just one. And they were they were very bad. And Dr. Shinen determined it was these heavy periods that caused the anemia. Hmm. Shinen also stated that had Brittany been tested even just a week prior, she would have been hooked up to a transfusion. That's how severe the anemia was. Dr. Shinen tested three sections of Brittany's lungs. 
The lungs should float when placed in water because they should be filled with air. Mm -hmm. All three sections of Brittany's lungs sank, indicating severe pneumonia. Shinen determined she had been walking around with pneumonia for quite some time. The anemia alone would have been fatal itself without the pneumonia, Mm -hmm. but it left Brittany more susceptible to illness. Right. Had she just gotten to a doctor, doctor? they would have caught it. The pneumonia is treatable. None of this would have happened. The results of the autopsy were released in February of 2010. Dr. Shinen concluded that Brittany's cause of death was community-acquired pneumonia with iron deficiency anemia and multiple drug intoxication as contributing factors. Mm -hmm. Her death was ruled an accident. I'm going to link the entire report in the show notes. Simon told People Magazine, quote, I had no idea she had pneumonia. I took very good care of my wife. She was on an antibiotic and she was taking cough medicine and doing all the right things. Well, there he is, full of shit again. But you didn't take her to a doctor. Right. The right thing is taking her to a doctor, not taking some over-the-counter cough medicine that's not going to clear up pneumonia. Not taking some antibiotic that isn't even prescribed for pneumonia, just like a random drug that you all happen to get. Simon and Sharon created the Brittany Murphy Foundation, and they set up a website to collect donations where they said the intention was to raise money for children's arts programs, the USO, and cancer research. Oh, Simon with a charity? (laughs) Yeah. They planned a memorial event and asked for donations between $1,000 and $10,000 in order to attend. Pretty quickly, they came under fire, though, because it was revealed they hadn't actually filed for nonprofit status, so they Mm. weren't technically a charity. Eventually, the memorial event was canceled due to what they claim was an illness in the family. Brittany's will stated that her entire estate, including the house, should go to her mother. She even included a statement that read, I am married to Simon Monjack, who who I have intentionally left out of this will. Simon states he was the one to persuade Brittany to leave everything to Sharon and to include this statement. He makes a big deal about it. But I wonder if that's true or if Brittany decided on her own that she didn't want Simon to get anything. Not sure. Brittany also had a trust and she left everything in the trust to her mother. To her mom. However, she didn't fund the trust. What's that mean? So when you set up a trust... The trust owns whatever assets you you fund it with that you that you put in the trust's name. Mm-hmm. So if it doesn't own anything, it oh, has no control over those assets. So yeah. she had okay. a pension plan and a bank account, right? But they weren't put in the trust's name. So by California state law, those assets went directly to Simon. Damn. Sharon still got the house because that is listed that specifically in the will. To her. Mm-hmm. Simon got everything else. Simon didn't waste much time using that money either. He began withdrawing Britney's money by the hundreds yeah. of thousands of dollars. According to Jeffrey Morganroth, Britney's former business manager that I mentioned earlier, Simon had drained her accounts by 80% before his Dang. own death in May 2010. And that was just how how much late? So he five died months later. Five months later. I was gonna say mm-hmm. six. Um <clears throat> what did he buy? <laughs> I'm pretty sure he used that money to pay off all his 
fucking debts that he owed everywhere from all the suits against him from all the money he owed. Mm. That's my guess. Jesus. Linda knew her son was not feeling well and said he'd been deteriorating for some time. He had become extremely ill and Linda was worried about him. The day before he died, he called his mom to let her know he was okay, saying, quote, I made it through the night. I'm alive. Linda kept calling him over the next few hours to check on him, and she said he became incoherent and then unresponsive. Linda spoke with Sharon and insisted she get him to the hospital. Because remember, Linda is in England. Right. She can't really do much being gone. Sharon and Simon are in L.A. Yeah. Sharon replied, he's been through the wor- he's been through this before. He's over the worst of it. What the? F- One, he's been through this before. Two, um, yeah, and you didn't call the 911 the first time. So maybe learn from your mistakes. Well, I think she was saying... Simon had acted like this before. Gotcha. Linda called back a little later and Sharon told her he'd been vomiting a black substance but was sleeping now. When a person vomits a black substance, it's a sign of internal bleeding, which can be caused by anemia. For the next 45 minutes, this substance was leaking out of Simon's mouth. Sharon just sat with him and used paper towels to wipe it away. Call 911. And keep in mind, he's unresponsive. He's just leaking this substance, and she's dabbing it with paper towels. Still no call to an ambulance. When Sharon realized Simon wasn't breathing, she did call 911. I'm going to link that call in the show notes as well. There's some weird things about it, kind of like in the first one. Mm-hmm. So when the operator asks her his age, she again gets it wrong. She says he's 43 of uh, 42. He was 40. She also refers to him as baby a lot, which is just a little weird. In both 911 calls for Brittany and for Simon, Sharon hangs up on the operator when she goes to let the paramedics in. Don't hang up on the operator. Just keep it on. Simon was declared dead at the house. Sharon placed the call to Linda to let her know her son had passed. Simon's cause of death was eerily similar to Brittany's, acute pneumonia and anemia. His death was ruled natural, whereas Brittany's was ruled accidental, Accidental. which I thought was interesting. Mm -hmm. Prior to his death, Simon claimed he was going to have to undergo triple bypass surgery. He claimed his heart was failing. This was determined to be untrue. Though he had a slightly enlarged heart, he'd actually had an EKG done not long before his death, and his heart was totally fine. Just a quick question. Were mm-hmm. they vegetarians? Were I mean, because they both had an anemia issue. You know, and I mean, I've had back and forth some issues with being anemic. I'm, so I'm just curious. It's interesting you say that. I'm not sure. I do know what was, I do know the contents of his stomach when he died, mm-hmm. which was noodles and quote questionable carrots i don't know how carrots are questionable but that's what was listed it's in that report so i'm gonna link that interesting um i and also i was thinking i remember back when the news broke with his death and i was like Mm -hmm. oh that's weird you know like and i was 
but I was always thinking there was some shiftiness when she died. So anyway, I was thinking that was interesting. And then I was like, is there something toxic in the house? Like, do they mold or something? That was one of the theories. Yeah. Well, I thought the same thing because I was like, okay, two people within months of each, of each other, same circumstances. Like, I I thought it was something in the house as well. And we're going to talk about that. And and at the time, I don't even know if I knew her mom lived there as well. Like, I don't think. Yeah. I don't think I did. So I think I was just thinking, gosh, that's weird. Like she died, then he died. And, you know, and then, of course, I watched the documentary. Yeah. Just curious. Uh, Simon's mother, Linda, stated, as I mentioned earlier, that she felt he had developed Munchausen syndrome. And she said he was taking heart medication without being properly diagnosed. He would just get these medications that he didn't actually need. He was taking several. The prescription bottles found in his bedroom are all listed on the autopsy report. Again, I'll link it. They come from various pharmacies. They're prescribed different names, and it's pages long. Once word got out about Simon's death, theories started flying. Mm -hmm. Like we were talking about, because two people living in the same house, what was happening there? One theory was that the house contained toxic mold, and that had caused the deaths. There was a lot of back and forth about this. First, Sharon denied that this could be a possibility, but then she later claimed the house did have mold. She even took legal action against the builders and eventually settled for $600,000. Wow. Dr. Lisa Shinen stated no mold was found in Brittany's lungs or blood, and mold mm -hmm. wasn't listed on Simon's autopsy report either. Also, Sharon never got sick. Right. Does Sharon still live in the house today? No, she sold it. Okay. And I'm just going to throw this in here. There's a website called gangsterreport.com. Oh. And a report on there states that prior to Simon's death, Brittany's dad, Angelo, took out a murder contract on him because he felt that Simon had caused Brittany to die. He reportedly hired two hitmen for the job, paying a retainer of $10,000. The hit didn't come close to being carried out. And when Simon died... Angelo turned his anger towards Sharon and reportedly hired the men to kill her. Angelo believed Sharon must have poisoned both Brittany and Simon. Mm -hmm. So he hired an independent company to do an autopsy. In this independent report, a sample of Brittany's hair was tested. Don't know where he got that sample of hair. And 10 heavy metals were detected, which Angelo believed pointed to rat poisoning. Angelo filed a lawsuit against the L.A. County Coroner's Department stating that a more thorough investigation should have been conducted. Mm -hmm. However, heavy metals present in hair is most commonly attributed to hair dye. And Brittany dyed her oh, hair, hair often. Yeah. Dr. Shinen did not find any trace of these metals in Brittany's bloodstream. A judge eventually dismissed Angelo's lawsuit because Angelo failed to follow up on any of his claims and he failed to appear in court. But suspicion still surrounded Sharon. In both cases, why hadn't she called an ambulance sooner? Why was she the only one who hadn't gotten sick? There is a lot of animosity between Linda and Sharon. Linda blamed Sharon for not calling for help sooner. And she also told Sharon that she'd have to move out of the house because it was hers now. However, the house was the one thing specifically listed for Sharon. So she did have a right to that. And like I said, she eventually sold it. Both women deny any and all accu accusations against them, and Sharon has since disappeared from the public eye. 
I don't believe there was any foul play, nor do I think mold caused their deaths. I think their lifestyle, believing that they were equipped to self-diagnose and self-medicate, led to these tragedies. There are so many points along the way where it's like, oh, you should just go to an actual doctor for that. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, they didn't. I think Simon had both Brittany and Sharon under his spell. Everyone talks about how convincing this guy was. And I think he I think he believed he had illnesses. I think he believed the government was out to get him. I think he believed both he and Brittany would lose out on work opportunities if the paparazzi saw them going to a doctor. And I think he passed this paranoia on to his wife and mother-in-law. I think it was a really unfortunate case of an otherwise perfectly healthy woman who was manipulated into not getting the help she needed. And I think both deaths could have been prevented. Yeah, absolutely. I I am curious. uh, Do people live in that house now? So they actually tore down the house and I, okay. and rebuilt, so it looks nothing like it did before. All right, which I, I would too. Yeah, yeah. Get, get rid of that energy. Yeah, yeah. Cynthia Hill, the director of that HBO documentary, received a lot of criticism because people felt like one, there was too much focus on Simon, and two, it didn't reveal anything new. But I don't think you can talk about Britney's death without going into detail about Simon because mm-hmm. he was a contributing factor. Absolutely. And you have to look at the patterns of behavior to see how it all ended up where it did. And I think people just really want to believe something more sinister had to have happened in that house or that there were evil motives at play. But I think it's far simpler than that. Cynthia also had a really difficult time getting people to agree to be interviewed for the project because I think a lot of people felt guilty. Right. I could I could see that. Yeah. Like uh, they should yeah. have tried to do more. Yeah. When Kathy and Jimmy found out Brittany had died, she thought, why didn't I just go over there and take her away? Ashton Kutcher also refused to be interviewed. And when Cynthia was asked if she had spoken with him, she just said, I can't say. Wow. I think even though they hadn't been together for a while, he probably did have some guilt. Of course. Cynthia said everyone she did speak to mentioned the importance of remembering Brittany's kindness. Everyone was so consistent when they would describe her, Cynthia said. She was so generous, caring, and always thinking about everybody else. And I think sometimes that gets forgotten because of all the mystery surrounding her death. She was loved by everyone. And people said Brittany never spoke ill of any of her coworkers. She just didn't have a mean bone in her body. Yeah. She doesn't g- g- give that off. Like, yeah. She, she gives off such light. Light. Like, exactly. And, and just sweetness. Mm-hmm. Go watch that Happy Feet video, everybody. She's, uh, she's truly gosh darn neat in that video. Gosh beautiful darn voice. According to a couple of friends of Britney, the spirit of the actress continues to live on. In a 2016 episode of the show Hollywood Medium with Tyler Henry, first off, I really want Tyler to do a reading on me, and I emailed him many years ago. Tyler, I'm still waiting for your response. (laughs) Jamie Presley is the guest getting the reading, and Tyler says, We have a younger woman who's stepping forward who feels like she passed away too soon. And when she's coming through, she's making my lungs hurt quite, quite a bit. Mentally, this feels strange. Physically, this feels strange. I just saw Britney Spears. So that's usually a reference to the name Britney. And Jamie says, Britney Murphy. 
And then Tyler says that the spirit felt she was in a manipulative situation in her life and was badly influenced. Just a month after that episode aired, Taryn Manning was DJing an event in Toronto. She was in 8 Mile with Brittany Murphy. Mm -hmm. She starts playing Lose Yourself by Eminem from 8 Mile. And Taryn says to the mic, let's give it up for Brittany Murphy, one of my best friends who's not with us anymore. And right then, the sound system shut down. Taryn said, that was weird. Hi, Brittany. And then she asked for a moment of silence for her. And I said earlier, this case really reminded me of Marilyn Monroe, just Mm -hmm. in their talents, how they were treated by Hollywood, how their relationships with men set up a pattern that contributed to their deaths. Both were in their 30s when they died, and both had just 30 people attend their memorial service. Really? Mm -hmm. Why is that? Well, with Marilyn, if you remember back, Joe DiMaggio didn't want certain people there because he felt they had contributed to the death. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Sharon wanted things private as well, along with Simon for Brittany. So it was very small. Brittany was buried on Christmas Eve at Forest Lawn Cemetery in Hollywood. And Simon is buried right next to her, which pisses me off. I want to end this with Brittany's own words. And to do that, I'm going to go back to her interview with Drew Barrymore. Drew was asking about some of her favorite things. So I'm going to list a couple. Brittany's favorite movie was All That Jazz. Her favorite directors were Bob Fosse and Woody Allen. And her favorite swear word was fucko. And Drew's like, fucko? And Brittany said, I never use it, but I think it's priceless. Then Drew says, one last thing. When it comes to your work, what do you want from yourself or what do you want most to give to others? Brittany replies, exactly myself. And hopefully through my self-discovery, others can gain self-discovery. I just hope to be an illumination of light and love and strength for people who need it whenever they need it. That is a beautiful sentiment. I think we should all try to be... A little bit like that, especially this time of year. And what we were saying earlier, I mean, that's it. Kindness. Kindness. That that was what Brittany was. She was kindness personified. And people need that right now. Uh, yeah. More than ever, really. Yeah. I hope that both Sharon and Linda have found peace. Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to victim blame or say shoulda, woulda, coulda, but it's really hard to go through the timeline of events and not think, oh, why didn't, why didn't you just call right then? It's hard, but go watch her Somebody to Love video again. I'm linking it. It just, it's going to make you happy. Absolutely. I When I watched it, it was like midnight and I was really tired and I was um, finishing up like research for the night and I got so teary eyed. I was just like, oh, Brittany. so did I when I watched it. It's, yeah. it. Not only is it beautiful and you realize what a gorgeous voice she has and she's so talented. Mm-hmm. It, again, we said like she seems so light and airy and she just seems so happy. Like she yeah. was really in her element singing it. And yep. I think what I could see from her and what she was exuding was just, she was proud of herself. She was so talented. She was so great. She, she was definitely gone too soon and could have, I mean, who knows what, where her career could have taken her. 
And in the meantime, you can leave us a comment. Let us know what you thought about this. Um, Perhaps you listened to it on your drive to your holiday destination, or maybe you're just listening to it as you're wrapping gifts or whatever you might be doing. Um, But let us know. Just say hi. You could do that uh, through our email at horrorwoodpodcast at gmail.com. Or you can follow us at any social media, including YouTube at Horrorwood Podcasts. And if you're feeling so inclined, please rate, review, subscribe, any of the three, all of the three. We would appreciate any of it. As well as you could also join or subscribe to our Patreon and become a beloved Patronian. Yes, at patreon.com slash Podcast. Happy holidays. I hope that everyone has a safe and warm and enjoyable holiday. And we will be back with another episode next week. See you soon, misfits.